If you're visiting, my name's Kieran. I'm so glad that you could join us for our series in Genesis. This is week two in a series on the book of Genesis. And uh, it's always in hindsight when I come to a passage that I realize I've given myself far too little time to speak on far too much scripture. And so it is this morning, because uh, if you go through what we're going to be going through uh, uh, in Genesis today, you'll see that there are so many different sermons I could preach. So, for example, we could have a sermon on the theology of work, where uh, that would be based on verse 28, where God says, let them have dominion and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you've got a, a, a sermon on the theology of work in here. There's also a sermon on the theology of gender. Have a look at verse 27, based on these words, male and female, he created them. Does that sound topical to, to preach on a, a theology of gender in this day and age? Well, well, there it is in Genesis 1. Uh, also, there's a theology of rest. If you read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, uh, it says in uh, verse 1, on the seventh day, God rested. Uh, if you uh, were paying attention, you'd probably see there's a theology of creation care or, or eco-church uh, that we have, which is a ministry here. So many different things we could talk about, but the thing that I want to focus on, and I think um, the, the, the main focus in this passage that we'll be honing in on is a theology of the image of God. Uh, what does it look like for us to be made in the image and likeness of God? And if you think about it, this is extremely topical in this day and age because uh, people are exploring all kinds of different paradigms and different patterns of what it means to be human. Have, have you noticed that in our culture today? And so this question of, of what does it mean for us to be made in the image and likeness of God is a really topical one. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And, and there's three things I want to talk about as we go through. And the first thing I want you to see is the importance of the image of God. The next thing we're going to look at is the breaking of the image of God. And then finally, the healing of the image of God. So let's start. I hope you keep your Bibles open, Genesis chapter 1, with the importance of the image of God. And, and if you even look at page 1 of the Bible, you can sort of see how the writer has been building up to a climax and crescendo when he gets to uh, the uh, sixth day. If you look on the bottom right corner of your pew Bibles, you'll, you'll see that he spends far more time on day 6, on the day that humans were created. Um, you, you see it as well in the fact that uh, humans are given a poem. It's the first poem in history, the first poem in, in the Bible, and, and it's given over to describing these humans that God has created. Um, you also see it in the fact that out of all of creation, humans are the only ones who are made in the image and likeness of God. And then as well, after God uh, creates humans, every day he says it was good, or the Bible says it was good. But then what does it say after humans are created? Anyone? It was very good. And so you can see the importance of these humans being made in the image and likeness of God. After God, we learned last week, God is the central character. The, the, the story starts in the beginning God, he's the main character and center of the story. And also, he's mentioned 35 times in, in chapter 1. 35 times. So after God, who's the main character, human beings have pride of place in this creation story. Uh, there's a sermon that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, once preached called The American Dream. And here's what he says about the image of God. The image of God means that all people have something within them that God injected. Every person has the capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And, of course, he means her. 
as well. I love how C.S. Lewis uh, puts it, the, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He says this, he says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, he's talking about Holy Communion, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Now, this has profound implications for the way that you look at others and for the way that you look at yourself. See, our culture says you are what you achieve, doesn't it? Whether that's through business or career or through family or sex or relationships or academia, our culture says you are what you achieve. And so everyone ends up working for approval as if it's something that they don't already have and they're desperate to give. Your your identity comes from what you achieve as opposed to what we see in Genesis which is working from approval, not working for approval, because it's something that we already have as a gift given to us by God being made in his image. And what that means, it's it's actually radical, the implications of this, because it means if we get it in our heart of hearts, we go out into the world not trying to get that identity, but actually out of a fullness where we're actually trying to give. Actually, you see this logic in verse 28. Have a look with me. It it says, firstly, God blessed them. They haven't done anything yet. They haven't got a job. They haven't got their act together. They haven't cleaned up their bedroom. They haven't got got, a, a partner. They haven't done anything. God blessed them. And then what happens? Then God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, we're human beings first that are blessed. We're not human doings that are desperate to build an identity. We already have it given to it as a gift of God by grace and not by works. See, if they're filled up and overflowing by the blessing of God, and then out of that fullness and overflow, they end up going out to be fruitful and multiply. It's almost like in the Garden of Eden. There are these rivers that flow out of the garden into the world. And it's how the world was made. Father, Son, and Spirit in the overflowing joy. And um, it's called perichoresis in in the Greek um, terminology. This dance of the Trinity, of their love and their creativity exploding into this paradise because they couldn't contain themselves for their joy that they make humans and they want to share that. And we've been made in that image to be filled to overflowing, to then go out into the world and bring that blessing and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And do you know what this means? It means that you don't have to run around trying to prove yourself through whatever it is that you're doing. It means that you can take a Sabbath and rest without feeling guilty. And if you do feel guilty, you've got to wonder and ask yourself the question, are you working for approval or are you working from approval if you aren't able to rest? Do you you know what else it means? It means that if you're sick or disabled, or if you're old and you're running out of steam, if if you're not being very productive, anyone feel like that sometimes? (laughs) If you're not being very productive, if, if you feel like you're not making much of a contribution, 
because of these things. Maybe you're old and infirm. You still have tremendous value and incredible significance and overwhelming and unimaginable worth because you're made in the image of God. And so there, this has profound, if we can take it to our hearts, this has profound implications for how we see ourselves, but it also has profound implications for how we see others. I've already quoted from uh, the great civil rights activist, Martin Luther King Jr., and this, um, this sermon that he preached, The American Dream. Well, he goes on in the sermon to say, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man or woman from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because everyone is made in the image of God. Now, can you see the logic that he's building here? He's saying racism is wrong because everyone is made in the image of God. But I want to ask you this. What happens if you live in a secular society where all the elites and all the educators and all the media and pretty much everyone doesn't believe in God and therefore doesn't believe in the image of God? What happens to the foundation of equality and the foundation of human rights? If you don't believe in God and therefore you don't believe in the image of God, on what are you able to value human worth And human dignity, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in the image of God. Bertrand Russell was a British mathematician and 19th century, he was an atheist. And he says this, he says, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his love and his beliefs are just the outcome of accidental co-locations of atoms. You are just the outcome of an accidental co-location of atoms. That's a, that's a prevailing belief. And, and the, the um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in the 20th century, Oliver uh, Wendell Holmes, and this is the American Supreme Court, he once wrote this, scientifically... I see no reason for attributing to humans significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. This is where it leads. Well, what happens to a society that stops believing in God and therefore stops believing in the image of God? Well, you, you end up with philosophers and ethicists like Peter Singer. Anyone put up your hand if you've heard of Peter Singer, very famous philosopher, professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He's famous, he's, he's Australian, he's very popular. I think he's been on Q&A, very influential. What happens when you don't believe in God and the image of God is you end up with philosophies and philosophers like Peter Singer. He, he doesn't believe in the image of God and therefore he thinks that human rights are not grounded on the image of God, they're grounded in human capacities. This is a philosophy known as utilitarianism. And and I just want to give you some of what Peter Singer says about human dignity and human worth. He says, the notion that human life is sacred just because it's human life is medieval. Species membership alone, regardless of other characteristics such as rationality or self-awareness, does not give a being the right to equal consideration. Let me keep going. He says, a retarded infant is not a person. Therefore, killing a defective infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Doesn't that warm the cockles of your heart? Let me give you this one. The life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, 
or a chimpanzee. This is not fringe, friends. This is not fringe. Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. So can you see the importance of the doctrine of the image of God? Are you starting to see the implications of a society that turns its back on the doctrine of the image of God and where that leaves us and where that takes us? If you have non-Christian atheistic friends who are appalled by the idea of some of the ideas of what Peter Singer has shared, well, the question you've got to ask them is, on, on what basis? On what grounds can you be appalled? Because this is just a natural outcome of natural evolution theories. On what basis can you be appalled? I'm, I'm appalled by it because I believe in that God and the doctrine of the image of God. On what basis can you be appalled at that type of worldview? Uh, let, 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 let's, let's go. We, we've talked about the um, doctrine of the importance of the image of God, um, but I want to move on from that. And I, I want to ask a question. When you look around, when you look in the world, why do we see the image of God being trampled everywhere? Why do we see human rights and human life being trampled everywhere? And, I, and I'm not just talking about things like abortion and infanticide. I'm talking about violence and, and war and inequality and discrimination. We have these kids in Calabay at the moment who there's such inequality and injustice, they're not going to be able to eat a meal once a day. There's poverty, there's slavery, there's injustice. Why do we see the image of God being trampled everywhere? That leads us to the breaking of the image of God. Because what does it actually mean for us to be made in God's image? I, I think part of it is that we're like mirrors and, and we're made to reflect the glory of God. It's, it's there, in a sense, in verse 28, at least in hidden form. In verse 28, we, we look up and see the glory of God and it says God blessed them and he said they were very good right he was he was delighted with what he made he blessed them and so we look up and get the blessing of God and then like a mirror mirror we look out and we reflect the glory of God he says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth you see God wants to fill the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea and the way that he is designed primarily to do that is through his image bearers filling the earth with his glory. Uh, one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, he says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Fully alive with the blessing and the glory of God and reflecting that out into the world. We're supposed to represent God to the world. But part of what this means is that as much as we've been led in our culture to believe that we're autonomous beings and we want to raise kids to be independent and autonomous, actually we're not. We're dependent. We're entirely dependent on our maker. We're kind of like those, you know, those glow-in-the-dark toys that my kids uh, love? If you want them to glow in the dark, what do you have to do? You have to bring them into the presence of the light. And, and that's what we're like. Uh, that means that all of your glory and all of your worth actually comes from being like a mirror and facing the glory of God. It's entirely dependent on him. And that means if you stop facing him, if you stop looking to him and basking in his glory and his blessing and his love, then 
you're going to start looking for glory elsewhere. You're going to start trying to fill that cup because glory is what you're made for. Blaise Pascal said it famously, and you probably know this quote. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus Christ. And so the problem is that because we've turned away from God, there's this gaping hole in our hearts that, that each of us is sort of trying to fill. Um, and this is what happened at the fall. It was the breaking of the image of God. So St. Augustine in the 5th century, he, co- he coined a Latin term to describe this, and it's homo incavatus si. Anyone, anyone got their Latin down? Homo incavatus si. It's this idea that human beings are curved in on ourselves. We've been curved in on ourselves. Martin Luther picks up on the idea and he says, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly and viciously seeks to use all things, even God, for the sake of self. We've become self-absorbed, self-justifying, self-centered. And in some ways, the, more, the higher the cause and the more beautiful the, um, the thing that you're serving, the, the more better vehicle it is as, uh, to, to glorify the self. So, for example, um, in ministry, for becoming a preacher, there's all kinds of twisted reasons to do what I do. You, you get to get to the top of the social pecking order. Uh, you, you, you get to have a whole group of people uh, listening to you. But we, we can take, uh, and charity, the, the, the better the cause, whether it's a secular cause like environment or a religious cause like becoming a preacher, the better cover it is for serving the self, the better alibi you have. And this is, this is what it means to be curved in on ourselves. And so I've begun to learn that I should, would never underestimate a person's ability to take something glorious and beautiful and good and then to twist it into nothing more than a vehicle for the self, for vanity. And I think as Christians, because I'm chosen and not forsaken, I am who you say I am, we, we have a freedom to say, hey, guess what? My motives are not clean here. This is what it means to be in curvatus C. Um, as one Dutch philosopher said, pride and vanity have built more hospitals than all the virtues combined. Or Paul Keating, always great with a quip, said it like this. Always back the horse named self-interest, son. It'll be the only one trying. <laughs> do, do you see? That's, that's the doctrine of in Kavates see that we've twisted in on ourselves, the dark dungeon of the self. So what can we do? What can we do about it being twisted in on ourselves? We've looked at the importance of the image of God. We've looked at the breaking of the image of God. But now let's look at the healing of the image of God. Because the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 verse 16, he picks up on this language of the image of God and yet he applies it to Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 he says Christ is the image of the invisible God the word in Greek is icon he's the image of the invisible God and in John 14 verse 9 Jesus says if you've seen me you've seen the father I and the father are one 
And the Apostle Paul gives us the clue in 2 Corinthians 3, which was our second reading of, of how this healing, how this broken image in us can be healed. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 15, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lives, um, lies over their minds. So he's talking about people reading the Bible, reading the law, but there's a blindness so that they don't see Jesus, who is the image of God. But then he goes on in verse 16, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see, our soul is like a magnet. I tried to Google, like, what's the most powerful magnet that's ever been made in the history? Well, our soul is even more powerful than that in in the sense that we need glory. We want glory. We have to have glory. But it's for the glory of God that we were built. And so turning our backs on God, we try and find it elsewhere in whatever means that we can. And so the question is, is there anything big enough? Is there anything beautiful enough to terrify? away from our kind of addiction to lesser glories to kind of break us out of that dark dungeon so that we can have a glory that can really fill us, bend us back into shape? And the answer from the Apostle Paul is, yes, there is. It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians when I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And he prays in Ephesians 3, I pray that God will give you power. This is the dynamite of the resurrected Jesus, the power of the Spirit. I pray that he'll give you power that you may know the height and depth and breadth and width of God's love, which surpasses knowledge. We need power to rip us away from ourselves so that we can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. This is why for the last two years with a bunch of teenage boys, we've spent two years, um, fortnight, I was going to say week in, week out, fortnight in, fortnight out, studying the person of Jesus because he's the only one who has the power to break us being curved in on ourselves and to set us free to, to live the glory for which we were born. It's the person of Jesus. And as we behold him, we become like him. Do you see Paul's logic in 2 Corinthians 3? He says, apart from beholding, there is no becoming. So as we gaze into his beauty, it it starts to bend us and even to break us out of ourselves and we become more and more like him. Think about it. Nowhere has the image of God been more clearly seen than in the person of Jesus. And yet think about the Lord Jesus. Even he came this close to becoming a victim of infanticide himself. Can you remember that? King Herod wanted to destroy Jesus. The the image of the invisible God tried to crush him and destroy him. Isaiah 53, this, this Jesus says that, he was despised and rejected. He was marred beyond human likeness. You see, nowhere has the image of God been more trampled on and defiled than in Jesus on the cross of Christ. Nowhere has the image of God been more trampled on and defiled. What is God doing on the cross 
Why is the image of the invisible God being so utterly trampled and defiled? C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, the son of God made himself like men so that men could be like the son of God. He's talking about men and women. Here's how St. Augustine puts it in the 5th century. He says, Christ's deformity is what gives you form. If he had been unwilling to be deformed, you would never have got back the form that you lost. So he hung on the cross deformed, but his deformity has become our beauty. Paul is saying, apart from beholding Jesus, the perfect image of God, there will be no becoming like Jesus. There will be no healing of the image of God. I I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in the Chronicles of Narnia. And this is where I want to leave you. Uh, C.S. Lewis tries to depict this in uh, the character of Lucy, as she's, as often it is through the character of Lucy in Narnia. As she's travelling by night one night, she uh, looks up onto a hill and she sees this great beast sitting there, illuminated by the moon, and, and it's Aslan. And so she runs towards Aslan and she throws her arms around his soft, silky mane, and they get into this kind of play fight wrestle with Aslan the lion and at one point she she looks up into his face and and she says Aslan you're bigger and Aslan says that's because you're older little one and confused Lucy says not because you are and Aslan assures her I'm not bigger but every year you grow you'll find me bigger see an expanding soul gets to see an expanding Christ And this is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3. All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed from one degree of glory into another. So brothers and sisters, look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this precious doctrine of the image of God. I am who you say I am. There are no ordinary people. Help us to know that. Help us to rest in that, Lord. Help us to abide in your blessing. Father, we pray that you would heal the image of God in us that's been broken through your broken body on the cross. And Father, we pray that we would be a church that is deeply devoted to the value of human life, especially the last, the least, and the lost. Father, we praise you for the opportunity we have to give these kids, these school kids, dignity and honour, a meal a day. Father, we pray that we would bring healing and justice to all the places in the world where your image has been trampled upon and defiled. Please make us a church that cares deeply and loves sacrificially. Have mercy on our culture, Lord, as it moves away from these life-giving truths. And Lord, help us to know your Son, who was conformed into the likeness of our sinful flesh, so that we could be conformed into the likeness of his glory. And thank you that one day that will be true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.